massive amounts of credit card debt and and didn't know what the heck I was doing. And, you know, it took me years to find a, a, an actual accountant who could, you know, deal with sort of SaaS and all this kind of stuff. And I really wished I could have had a little bit of capital and some kind of mentorship and, and shared resources. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how can we back these companies? And the problem is, you know, fundamentally with the toolkit that's available, you know, sort of uh, safes and convertible notes and just regular equity, um, preferred equity, like if I made an investment in, let's take, you know, Basecamp, a huge sort of bootstrap. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Ernest Capital co-founder Tyler Tringas. Uh, if you missed part one, please go back and hear about his time at Bloomberg and the different companies he's built before starting this. Um, so, Tyler, um, thinking about your experience both with your own businesses and these hundreds of founders that you've talked to and, and the really great founders that you've got as mentors and advisors as part of Ernest Capital, um, I'm, I'm interested in your observations of what kind of marketing or what kind of tactics have you seen really helpful for startups to grow? You know, everybody has all these theories and the internet's full of advice, but in your observation, what are, what are some tactics that have been terrible or, and what have some that, uh, you, you would really endorse? Yeah. A good question. Um, so we, are still, we call what we do funding for bootstrappers. And it's because, I mean, even though some people say, oh, that's an oxymoron, you know, bootstrappers don't raise capital. Well, um, we generally expect the businesses that we back to have a sort of bootstrapping mindset um, after they raise just a single sort of early stage amount of capital. So from there, the idea is that they should operate, you know, much like a bootstrap business. They should try to grow through revenue and they should try to grow sustainably and focus on keeping the company alive versus something that is, you know, dependent on outside capital. And so that universe of, of businesses, I think, has really zeroed in on a couple of marketing strategies that work really well. Um, a lot of those are around kind of, um, platform integrations or sort of hooking into um, other growing markets or marketplaces or things like that. So you've seen, you know, really cool businesses get built on top of, uh, on top of Shopify, right? So Shopify is um, sort of a, a SaaS platform for building an e-commerce store. And a lot of people have built you know, integrations on top of Shopify. And the good part about that is it's essentially free marketing, right? As more and more users sign up for Shopify, um, more and more of them are likely to find you know, your integration. And you can go and do that with every single e-commerce platform. Um, or you can build on top of um, you know, something like Stripe, right? Which is a, a sort of um, payment processor uh, that's, that's really sort of API driven and, and friendly for, uh, for software developers. And um, so they're acquiring tons of customers just by virtue of being, you know, an amazing product that's better than anything else. And so if you 
integrate with Stripe customers, then you're basically just getting free marketing. Um, we've also seen actually like a lot of success just with um, direct sales. And mostly where we've seen that has been um, in a, a category of businesses that I'm really interested in. And it's looking like a, a large number of the companies that we back are going to fit this sort of pattern, which is um, kind of industry focused vertical software. Um, so this would be, you know, like a lot of software that you're familiar with is kind of horizontal and part of a, a single part of the marketing stack, right? So it might be sort of email marketing and then it's, you know, help desk software and then it's your CRM, but you know, technically any business could use them and, and you're sort of stacking these all together. Um, what I'm seeing is really interesting is actually, well, I'm going to focus on the market for, you know, architects or the market for um, on-site, you know, construction management companies or the market for um, film post-production studios. And I'm going to build really focused software specifically for that industry. And maybe it's either going to be just for a niche problem that they only, only that industry has, or maybe it's actually going to combine, you know, several of those different you know, parts of the software stack, but, but make it very specific for that industry. And in those industries, you can really build a very impressive product that, you know, the, the sort of, because it's very focused on them, they're willing to pay quite a bit more than they would for, let's say, mail or something like that. Um, and in those instances, particularly when you have a founder that has deep experience in that industry, we're actually seeing pretty good returns just from direct sales, just basically um, cold calling, going to conferences, and, um, and just literally showing up and walking through the door um, actually <laughs> turns out to, to be um, fairly effective. Um, yeah, I would say mostly we, we tend to encourage our founders to focus on um, organic channels, things like, you know, uh, referrals from existing customers, inbound, um, you know, basic blocking, tackling of SEO, those sorts of things, rather than, um, you know, the sort of uh, paid customer acquisition. There's this sort of amazing statistic that's been going around from uh, Chamath Palyapatiya from Social Capital, where um, they were seeing that 40% of all the venture capital dollars were getting spent on uh, Facebook and Google ads, essentially, just paid customer acquisition. And uh, that to me is sort of um, broadly unsustainable. And it's certainly unsustainable if you're going to sort of take a, a, a sort of bootstrapper approach. Yeah. Um... When you think about those bootstrappers and you see, because, you know, obviously you've got all sorts of people applying to tr to get cash from you guys um, and you hear, you know, oh, we're going to get our customer acquisition by PPC campaigns and we've got a good ad buyer or we're going to do this type of tactic or that type of tactic. What kind of things are red flags for you and what kind of things make you think, oh, maybe this person understands their market? I would say for the most part, I tend to avoid them entirely. Um, you know, if there is, and I, I basically don't try to make any sort of a bet on um, PPC campaigns uh, being a sort of reliable source of growth. Um, and I don't make a bet on them over time. 
th that I think is probably just a, a sort of bias on, on my part, and maybe that uh, I'm wrong about that. But um, for my part, uh, if you have a PPC campaign that is that is working, um, you know, I'll say I'll, I'll assume it, it it may stay that way. But I feel like you know these markets are getting so competitive um, and so crowded over time that the odds are you know sort of tilted in in favor of that becoming a a worse and worse or decaying source of customer acquisition over time. Either you know you get fewer customers um, or it just gets more and more expensive as you try to grow. And so I really genuinely encourage folks that you know are, are sort of coming to work with us um, to, to focus on you know the sort of repeatable sources of customer acquisition that um, are effectively free yeah like what are some examples uh, really strong referrals uh, is, a, is a great uh, sort of example so you know particularly like if you're focused on an industry and your, your customers know each other um, having a, a really you know good highly incentivized well structured referral program that you know nudges people in a you know unobtrusive but but sort of reliable way to say hey you know if you're if you're really enjoying this here's how you can share it and if you share it um, you know, for each person that signs up, you get 10% off your bill for life. So that if you sign up, you know, 10 more customers, you basically get the software for free, um, you know, is a kind of thing that we've seen um, really, you know, be, be quite effective, particularly in B2B SaaS, which is, you know, really our, our wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, I, I liked your comment about showing up at the conference and actually building a human relationship. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's surprising. Um, but I, I really think that um, these days, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to be able to differentiate yourself at every level. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, SEO or Google AdWords or something like that. I mean, I think those are really good channels, but um, you, you're, you're sort of at the mercy of the market in that instance, right? You can't really make your own luck with those sorts of things. If, if, if something changes in you know, Google's algorithm or all of a sudden you, you know, a competitor of yours gets $100 million of venture capital, you can actually you know, genuinely be in real trouble. But um, if you have a sort of um, a product that's valuable enough that it makes sense to do some amount of high touch sales and you deeply understand your customer base and you or you can train people to sort of go to conferences and go on sort of uh, industry focused podcasts and basically just sell your product, you know, on a sort of one to one or one to many basis. Um, you know, that that's a real sustainable source of, um, of customer acquisition that uh, can't be taken away from you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you talk about the industry focused podcasts. And um, I I'm interested if you have any opinions, it, it seems like those folks who, like you said, they don't think that a good enough product is enough. You know, they're like a good enough product is entry to the game. Now we have to now we have to track the humans to want it, right? And you see those mm. folks who are willing to, they go on the podcast, they'll are, or, you know, you see some of these, uh, these videos online, like a dollar shave club, where it's like, it's so funny, you can basically like put a whole sales pitch in there, and people will stick around to hear what's different, because it's that funny, you know, and, and it's not just a, oh, a black box, we'll just, uh, we'll just assume the good enough product. And then we'll just have the marketing guys do that stuff that can't be that hard, you know, kind of a thing. Um, any, any thoughts about those approaches of that, you know, if you have like, say, a consumer product and you can't afford a sales force, but you do need to make that more direct connection, people need to 
you know, it needs to be more than one sentence on a pay-per-click ad. It needs, they need to get the feeling of you guys are different. You're worth investigating. Any, any thoughts about those type of approaches? Yeah. I mean, my bias is, is heavily towards, um, you know, towards product marketing in the sense that, um, you know, I, I would not necessarily build an incrementally better product and then try to, um, build 10x better advertising. I would say, you know, it's better to build a 10x better product that, you know, to some extent practically sells itself. Um, and so you're generating actual kind of word of mouth. Um, so yeah, I mean, the Dollar Shave Club commercial was amazing. Um, it's very but if hard. The, if to, the if the product wasn't that much better than Gillette, it probably wouldn't have worked, right? Right. Well, yeah. And, and, or I guess in this case, it was that much cheaper, but sure. yeah. that's um, <laughs> value yeah. kicks. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. 10 X better value. Exactly. Yeah. I mean um, you know, it's very hard to write into the business plan and it's certainly hard, you know, it, you know, if that's your plan, because you, you, as a founder, you know, either yourself or you just have access to just some world-class marketers that you know are going to be able to reliably create, you know, hilarious, engaging viral videos like that. Um, I mean, that's awesome. And, and you should probably just stay focused on, you know, bootstrapping the business because that's just something that's impossible for investors to sort of wrap their heads around and, and believe that you can do that reliably. Um, but, you know, and, and that's fine, right? I mean, sometimes there are just sort of perfectly good businesses and perfectly good strategies that are not a fit for getting, you know, other people who are not inside your business who have to sort of evaluate it from the outside and then make a bet. Um, you know, sometimes you just can't match that up, which is why, you know, I'm, I'm never in the business of talking people out of bootstrapping. I'm sort of constantly finding myself saying, you sure you can't just bootstrap this? Are you sure you don't need less money? You know, like, can't you do this some other way? Yeah, and listen, then I can't talk them out of it, you know. Look out here in, in Utah, you know, they got the nickname uh, Silicon Slopes now. Um, just this mm -hmm. year, you take uh, Pluralsight, you know, they bootstrapped for 12 years or something and they just went public for $4 billion. And then yep. uh, um, Qualtrics, you know, same thing. They bootstrapped for 12, 13 years and they sold to SAP for $8 billion. And you hear mm -hmm. those guys talk about like the big advantages of building a business model that's actually profitable and having to, having to actually get that serious early on and f really know your marketplace before you go pouring gas on the fire. And uh, it, anyways, they're pretty persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think advise you, you know, that you see in those examples and others is that often it may take longer, right? So it takes a, a sort of longer period of time to get to these, you know, sort of huge outcomes. Linda is another example, mm -hmm. right? That was acquired by LinkedIn. You know, they bootstrapped it for over a decade and then got sold for, I think it was 1.5, 1. 1.7. Yeah, 1.5. Yeah. So I was going to say close, something close to $2 billion, but billions of dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, but it took a while. But one of the things is that you see is that there's, there's an amount of sort of survivorship bias there, which says, you know, oh, well, <laughs> uh, bootstrap businesses take longer to get big. Well, no, what it actually does is it buys you the time to figure out how to get big, right? Because if you are bootstrapped and you are funded by customer revenue and you're not dependent on, you know, meeting the appropriate growth milestones to raise your next round of capital, you can, you know, have the time as a company to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to the product? How do we expand into an adjacent market? How do we, you know, basically navigate the maze 
to get to be a sort of multi-billion dollar company and you have the time to figure that out. It's not, you know, either we make this bet and we throw ourselves against the wall and either, you know, we die trying or we break through all the walls and, and we become a billion dollar company, you know. So I think that's the sort of magic of bootstrapping is that, you know, you can sort of stay sustainable, stay alive as a company, continue growing, continue serving your customers, you know, basically indefinitely if you are, you know, funded through through revenues and and you're, you know, break even or profitable. Yeah. Well, I can just see how attractive what you guys have created will be. You know, the, you know, I'm, I'm on this earnestcapital.com looking at key attributes of shared earnings agreement and it says like hey, we're not taking board seats. You know, we typically have a 3 to 5 times return cap. So I'm assuming that means once you've got triple your money or five times your money, that that's all and they're not, you know, they're not in the business permanently. Is that, is that what, am I reading that right? A little bit. So, so the shared earnings agreement um, is basically our new financing structure that we essentially created because as I started to, to look at, you know, we, we kind of skipped over the part in, in my, when I was talking in, in the part one of this episode about, you know, what my past was. But um, one of the critical things was that I bootstrapped the, a B2B SaaS business and um, was super transparent about it, was sort of blogging about it, met a ton of other founders building, you know, these kinds of what I called micro SaaS businesses or essentially kind of bootstrapped um, internet scale SMBs, right, which can be sort of uh, remote teams, they can be very profitable, recurring revenue kind of businesses. And, and I wanted to figure out how could I sort of um, back those businesses because, you know, the, the sort of trajectory worked out really well for me. I sold the business in 2017 to a private equity shop. But in the early days, I, mean, by the way. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. No, it worked out really well. Um, super happy for it. The product still continues. The, the team, you know, is still running it um, as part of the, the private equity shop. And so it was a great outcome. But at the other side of the equation, the early days, I mean, I had massive amounts of credit card debt and and didn't know what the heck I was doing. And, you know, it took me years to find a, a, an actual accountant who could, you know, deal with sort of SaaS and all this kind of stuff. And I really wished I could have had a little bit of capital and some kind of mentorship and, and shared resources. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how can we back these companies? And the problem is, you know, fundamentally with the toolkit that's available, you know, sort of uh, safes and convertible notes and just regular equity, um, preferred equity. Like if I made an investment in, let's take, you know, Basecamp, a huge sort of bootstrap business success story. If I had invested, you know, $200,000 on a convertible note into Basecamp, well, Basecamp was a giant success, but I would be pissed as an investor, right? Because I've got nothing. I haven't converted. I haven't gotten a dollar. They never raised a round of equity in which my investment would have converted into anything and they never intend to sell it. So I have no, I've got no returns and no hope for liquidity, right? Which is a sort of fundamentally sort of silly misalignment. So we tried to sort of say, okay, if you want to build, you know, the next Basecamp or the next wild bit or something like that or the next qualtrics you know how can we create a structure that is going to be aligned with the founders decisions along the way so that we can get pretty good return for our investors and also you know be like not be sort of in these points where we're, we're misaligned with what the founders actually want to do so we created the shared earnings agreement um, fundamentally it's got two components the first one is uh, we create this concept called founder earnings, which is all of the 
economic value that goes to the founders. So we kind of, we have these, these kind of silly things we do. For example, if I'm a preferred equity holder uh, and I have 15% of, uh, you know, of the company preferred equity, um, if you're a profitable business, you have sort of revenue coming in, you've got all your expenses, and then there's this bit left over. And as a founder, I can just decide, well, this part of that is my salary, and this part of it is going to be dividends, right? And preferred equity investors only get access to the part that's dividends. Well, that's kind of ridiculous because the founder can more or less arbitrarily decide how much of that is going to be their salary, which the investors don't have access to. So we kind of grouped it all together and we say, look, whatever economic value is going to the founders, we'd like a percentage of that. And we want that until we hit a certain capped multiple of our initial investment. Um, and then after that, you can continue running your business profitably forever and not pay us another dollar. But we also want it to be sort of long-term aligned with the companies. So we have a kind of residual option, which is if you ever sell the business or you, let's say, decide to go raise a big round of financing, like you decide to go the VC route or private equity route or something like that, then we kind of convert into having either a percentage of the sale or a percentage of the, the round of financing, pretty much like a safe or convertible note works. Um, that, that piece is very similar. So if you decide to go that route, um, we'll basically participate and, and, and be along for the ride. But if you don't ever want to raise more financing and you don't ever want to sell the company, we also have a way to sort of high five and for everybody to be successful and for us to be very happy as investors with, with that outcome. That's awesome. Well, listen, where's the best place for people to connect with you besides checking out earnestcapital.com? Is there social really you're really active on or what's what's the best? Yeah, I mean, the best place to, to talk to me is um, at Tyler Tringus on Twitter. Um, my DMs are open there, I answer a lot of questions, um, usually sort of get into gory details of, of many of our decision making. My goal there is to be the most transparent parent, you know, early stage investor, you'll, you'll come across on Twitter. Um, it's TBD on whether that's actually a good strategy or not, but, but that's where I'm going. Um, yeah. And then we're earnestcapital.com. That's E-A-R-N, like earn, not like Ernest Hemingway. Uh, and I'm Tyler at earnestcapital.com if anybody wants to send me an email. Love it. Hey, thanks for making time for this. Yeah, this was great. Thanks so much. You bet.